G'day mates, g'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Guitar Wank Podcast, thank you so much for joining us, this is episode 161, where the fuck were you last week, Troy McGovern? Well, uh, we had uh, some technical difficulties, I believe, I, um, I went to Nashville and I brought all the drives, I thought, and then when I got there, the, the Guitar Wank stuff was not on it, so uh, I actually intended to... Um, to put up another interview I did with Sir Michael Ross, who we've talked about on the show before. Michael Ross, who lives in Nashville, great bloke, uh, who writes for Guitar Player and a bunch and Guitar Modern. His uh, website, you can go there. We, you hear all about it in uh, our discussion. So I went to Michael Ross's house. He was so great to have me over, and we did a a, a great interview. It was it was really great. I learned a lot, and um, you guys will be hearing that shortly. But uh, Yes, I was going to put that up, and then just life got in the way. When you've got a three-year-old, your life is not yours anymore, and uh, traveling, and then just feeling under the weather, and just a lot of shit. So, I apologize, but what I'm going to do to make it up uh, this week, um, as today is Monday, and this is going up as I'm saying this, uh, but this week, I will put up the Michael Ross one so we catch up. Um, and the Michael Ross one is just me and Michael shooting the shit. Michael's got a lot of great things to say and uh, talks about what he does in Nashville and the writing the articles. And it was it was great. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Michael, for all your help on that. And um, I think you guys will really enjoy it. He's a great bloke and a great player and a lot of great things to say. So, um, but this week, what I wanted to get up last week is this episode, which is... Uh, Bruce brought his roomie in, Paul Jackson Jr., which is fantastic. Paul was so great to come over. I mean, yeah, pretty amazing. Uh, I'm laughing because when we filmed this, or when we we, we uh, recorded this guitar wank session, Paul Jackson Jr., I mean, just one of the amazing many things this man has done as a player, played on so many, so many so many things but you know obviously one of the biggest things he played on was Thriller uh, with Michael Jackson so I was thinking um, now because I watched the documentary which I'm sure a lot of you people have uh, never leaving ever landing whatever um, I watched that I was just thinking man I wonder if I would have asked Paul Jackson about that and probably not because Obviously, Michael wasn't banging little boys in the control room. So, what's the point, right? But anyway, it just made me think about it. But anyway, besides all that, it's really got fuck all to do with Paul Jackson Jr., really. Uh, but definitely check out the um, the documentary. Uh, definitely worth a watch. Um, anyway, back to Paul. It was a great... This is a great episode. We sit down with Paul. We had a great time. A lot of fun. Um, so, we're about to jump into that. Bef- uh, before we do... Patreon members, this week, on the next episode, I am going to be drawing uh, the left workshop workshop pedals. We're going to be giving them away to lucky Patreon members. So if you're a member of Patreon, you are up for surprises. We're going to be giving away uh, prizes and keep that going. So left cop... Fuck, I can't even talk this week. And I'm not editing this, so... Up your bum. Left Coast Workshop. It's been a long day, right? Left Coast Workshop pedals. 
Thanks, Jim. Um, we're gonna be, we've got four of them, four or five pedals of those that we're going to be giving away. We were going to give them all together, and then I thought, you know what? Uh, let's give one away so more people have a chance to win, and you know. We just that's what we decided so that's what's going to happen there so make sure you tune in this week if you aren't a member of patreon go to patreon go to our website it's up the top uh, on the left hand side maybe click on patreon it'll take you there and you can you know be involved with supporting guitar wank but we're going to really look after our patreon members because uh they they are supporting guitar wank and um we want to make sure you guys get prizes and and now's a really good time to get in because there's not a lot of Patreon members. So you get in now, you really got a good chance of winning prizes. And we're going to keep those prizes coming. Also, the other people that did win prizes, uh, I made a list the other day and we're jumping on all that to send those prizes out. So hang tight. Uh, also, big news for our Australian listeners. Aussie listeners, listen, please. Bruce uh, Foreman and Danielle D'Andrea are heading down under. They're coming your way. And this is a really amazing chance to not only meet Bruce and Danielle, maybe see the red guitar, talk to Bruce, have a beer with him, and uh, just shoot the shit. They're coming down after June 15th uh, for probably two, three weeks in Australia. So um, we're throwing this out there. If you want to do a house concert, if you're in one of the major cities, don't don't try and organise a house concert if you're in Broome or um, Ayers Rock or the middle of fucking Australia because they're not going to do it, right? It's got to be one of the main cities. Melbourne, Sydney, uh, I don't know if they're going to get to Perth, but Queensland, you know, I don't know if they really want to go to Canberra, but, you know, anyway, uh, if you want them to do a house concert, make sure you email us, email us at guitarwank at gmail.com and I'll make sure I pass on the email to them and you guys can start talking about it. You know we do the house concerts here at Prohibition Studios. They're awesome. It's always such an amazing night. What I do is basically, you know, we get everyone to chip in, charge a little bit the door. Uh, you can bring your own booze or whatever. Blow it. However you want to set it up, as long as Danielle and Bruce get paid and they'll probably have their CDs and that. But it is an amazing night. You won't regret it. And you get two world-class musicians and artists performing at your house so if that's something you want to organize or maybe you want to organize it at a hall or a music store they're doing going to do workshops uh, and clinics down under uh, this is your chance to make it happen with them so make sure you email us june 15th on to uh for about two three weeks so the first week of july maybe a little longer it depends how many gigs they're going to get uh we're working on getting them on the morning shows and all that kind of stuff down under so yeah this is your opportunity and they will be open for uh workshops and private lessons possibly you have to reach out to them but um now's your chance to meet the amazing bruce foreman and the incredible beautiful danielle d'andrea june 15th on in australia check it out and uh and we'll keep you posted on the shows that they are going to do down there which will be fantastic a big shout out to our aussie people down there a big shout out to my mate um marcus marcus mate thank you so much for helping us with all this uh it's that's pretty pretty awesome marcus q kerbin i want to say marcus mccubbin but it's kerbin uh, in Melbourne, thanks Marcus for all your help. Really, uh, he's been helping us set up shows and that down there, and Bruce and Danielle and the universities. 
and exploiting their talents, people. That's what they're doing. So um, they're super excited about that. We're actually having a meeting tonight um, on the shows and everything in Australia. So if you have a if you have a great backyard or a nice big uh, living room, they'll come and do a show there and uh, and make it happen. That'd be really cool. So um and. You can get Bruce and Danielle shit-faced. Well, Danielle doesn't drink, but Bruce does. So he'll he'll drink double. Okay, that was that. What else we've got? We've got uh, Patreon members. I've talked about that. The giveaways this week for Patreon members. The other giveaways. I know there's been a few people. There was one gentleman that wanted his money back because uh, the T-shirts are uh, so behind. And I thought it might have been a mug too. We're out of mugs. We've got no more mugs. I've got to get more mugs. Um, gentlemen, I'm going to definitely refund your money if you did ask for that happy to do so uh and uh, i'll email you about that or maybe i'll send you more merch or whatever but anyway we appreciate the patience uh it's just been a busy time on this end um okay i think that's it so uh make sure you go to patreon.com slash guitar wank sign up subscribe leave us a review you know how all this bullshit internet works you got to leave review guys you got to let us know that what you're listening to you love us or hate us if you hate us just lie and uh be a good bloke or be a good love and i know we have some lady listeners out there thank you female audience for listening to us i don't know how you do it but uh but this is a good one mr paul jackson jr and uh we will catch you all later this week i'll set up the next one we are going to be giving away prizes so make sure you listen in and uh keep your fingers crossed go to patreon to be a member uh for the prizes and that's it shut up mccubbin let's get into it big shout out to lyle workman uh jeff McElane. he's got his album out i know he's promoting that doing everything big shout out to robin ford big thanks to brent mason in uh, nashville i saw brent when i was there uh yeah he's playing all right i think the guy might have a career which would be cool uh justin butler i'm gonna get justin on in the future and um and val in nashville we missed each other this trip again mate but next one we will and remember every tuesday night in nashville they have open mic night it's a it's a, a jam that Carla uh, throws together in Nashville. You can see it on the forum, the Guitar Wank forum. I know there was uh, some stuff going on there, but we do appreciate people supporting the forum. And if you have stuff to promote, you know, uh, we don't mind as long as you use it in a respectful way. And Carla does do that. So um, uh, I need to get to that jam and, and get my ass kicked on every level. <laughs> I'll just sit there and drink. All right, guys. Okay, enough. Uh, we'll see you guys all next week. Thank you so much for your support. And uh, this is 161 with Paul Jackson Jr. to Guitar Wank, everybody. I am super stoked to announce that we have my roommate with us. <laughs> my roomie. <laughs> I am so honored to share a room with this man. 
at USC. We have none other than Paul Jackson Jr. Welcome to Guitar right. The one, the only Mr. Bruce Foreman. <laughs> I could not ask for a better roommate. Uh, he's neat, he's clean, and he plays one mean guitar. So what can I say? Yeah. I've, been, I've been trying to get a nice guitar, but I can't afford one. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. how, how long did you guys meet at USC or? Maybe. I don't know. I, I might have met before. Yeah. I, we probably met before. I just see him, you know, would see him all the time. And, right. And, uh, and uh, I think the first time we actually did something, there was a uh, performance class of the studio majors. And I'm kind of looking at Bruce and he's kind of looking at me and we're kind of going, okay. Where did we go wrong here? It's, it's, <laughs> something's not quite well. Anyway, it was it was kind of interesting. We're kind of looking at each other, and it's like, okay, um, something something's not quite right. But anyway, it's like our eyes met, and we decided to be roommates. But hey, what can I tell you? <laughs> Are you you're not originally from LA? I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know why it's a rarity. It's it not, is, but, you, but it is. It's pretty rare. It just seems to be. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I grew up uh, close to uh, Athens Park, uh, 120th in yep. Vermont, uh, right in the middle of Los Angeles. And how did it go from? How did it get you get into guitar playing? Was there a family member or? Church or true story, uh, I wanted to play drums, right? And my mom took me to the music store to Gardena Valley Music, and the set of drums was three hundred and sixty nine dollars. It was wow. a blue metal flake set sitting in the window, and my mom lovingly looked at me and said, "This is not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else in the shop that you like?" And there was a twenty dollar guitar hanging up, and that's how I started playing the guitar. Wow, that's we're lucky. Cool. The world is lucky. Right? That's what happened. The world right? is lucky. Drums are so yeah. damn expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I think of it as divine providence, and you know, and the wisdom of my mom. Actually, right. Yeah. The big family, or were you two kids, uh, four kids, two yep. boys, two girls? You know, everybody played, and uh, you know, we, you know, played with the family band, played at school, uh, played at church later. You know, yep. not not early on because uh, you know I didn't didn't go to church. wasn't a Christian. Then yep. I became a Christian. And I started playing at church and. And, uh, you know, played at school with bands and anywhere I could play. Played with uh, local bands that my guitar teacher would put me in and just as much as I could play. Wow. So you, it was, you, you, you got the, the bite. You, you took it and ran and... Yeah, I, yeah. kind of, yeah. I, you, know, I, I, you know, I tell people uh, for years I didn't really have much of a personality because all I did was practice the guitar. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go anywhere. You know, it's like I... Um, in high school, when I decided I wanted to be a professional, I fixed all my classes so I could get out early. Right. And so I'd go home and I'd practice the guitar. And then senior year, I had, instead of math science, I was a math science major. Instead of math science, I had stage band, I had marching band, I had orchestra. And the, the, the music teacher would let me sit in there and practice and write arrangements and do whatever I wanted. And, and so then I'd go home and practice. And then I got to SC and <laughs> I didn't, okay, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I... <laughs> I passed out of one semester of English, and uh, all I did was play the guitar. That's all. I I didn't really do anything else. I just I just played the guitar. And uh, you passed out of or passed I, out in? I passed out of one oh, semester oh. of English. Like, I guess you know what they, you know what. Uh, Most people passed out in. Yeah, I, I passed out of one. Yeah, passed out of one semester, and then it came for the second semester, and I started to take it, 
And I remember the first day of class and the teacher says, okay, you're going to read two, two novels a week in here and you're going to write a report every week and you're going to have a major project for the semester. And I said, man, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of reading and a lot of, uh, you know, books and a lot of writing. Uh, I'll pick this up later. So I, I, I bailed and, uh, just ended up taking like a lot of music for the first couple of years. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What years was that? I got there in '77, and I left technically in '79. I think is when I actually left. No, I left the. Let's see. Yeah, I went back '78. Yeah, I left technically like I guess in '79, beginning of '79. I kind of left. And yeah, and you were already working. Then, I had started working. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I didn't. Uh, you know, I continued to study and stuff, but I, I didn't. I didn't go back to school. When, now, when did you? When did you start getting? Like, what was the big break that took you to that next level? Funny story. Um, there was a guy I was doing demos for. He was a Mo, ex Motown producer. He wrote "I'm Gonna Make You Love Me" and "You Make Me So Very Happy" and and Stone Love and all these big. Supreme Hits and Temptations Hits, and he had left Motown. His name was Frank Wilson. And I started doing demos for him when I was 16. Now, for those of you wow. that are not geezers like me, uh, they used to, before we had Pro Tools and Logic and GarageBand, uh, they would do demo, demonstration, so, you know, demo, demonstrations of what a song was going to sound like so they could pitch it to a recording artist. <clears throat> so he would use me on his demos. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, he started using me on uh, records. And then I got some recommendations from, from people like Patrice Russian and, and Lee Rittenauer and, and Ray Parker Jr. and Al McKay and, and different folks. And a guy by the name of Sonny Burke, who was uh, uh, Smokey Robinson's musical director for years. He was a wow. studio guy and, and also a lot from Wow Wow Watson and just little by little started working more and more. And that's, that's kind of how it got going. Damn. Yeah. Well, do you have a, a moment when, as a younger, as a kid, where you were just like, Damn, this is it. Like, did you do you remember a moment where you just kind of were in a situation where it was like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm I'm doing this. Every day I went to the studio. Yeah, yeah, every single day. Wow. I would like you know go wow, I'm actually like recording records. I think the first time was when I heard something that I played on that was on the radio. I think that was the first time it kind of really clicked. Yeah. But but I would I I still feel that way every time I go to the studio. That's it's awesome. like man, I you know I'm, you know I. I there's a scripture in the Bible that says your gift will make room for you, and it's like it's been, you know, over 40 years, and I'm still strumming for a living. So I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty cool. It's pretty what we get to do is pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hell of a way to um, to hone the chops too, like in a recording situation like that. So you were obviously taking direction, and would they give you a lot of direction back then, or did they, or was it pretty left open? Depends who I was working for. Right. Um, I used to work for an arranger by the name of Gene Page. Gene Page uh, uh, arranged uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling and a lot of stuff for Johnny Mathis, all the hits for Johnny Mathis and just to, and Love's Theme, all the stuff for Barry White. What he used to do was, um, uh, I think Ray Parker Jr. recommended me to him. And so he would, uh, you know, he'd write a master rhythm and then the rhythms for the guitar would be in the middle of the staff. Right. <clears throat> and so I'd play what he wrote. And I asked him one day, I said, hey, <clears throat> Gene, 
what makes you write these rhythms? He says, oh, I just write what I thought Ray Parker would have played. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So, you know, in situations like that, there'd be a lot of directions, or if it was a, a jingle or something like that, or, uh, you know, TV date, there'd be more direction. But usually it was, you know, look at the chart, look at the hits, you know, look at the transitions, look at the breaks, and make something up. Wow. So, uh, fortunately, I could read and write pretty fast, and I would forget stuff. So, I would, when, as soon as I came up with a part, I'd write it out so I didn't forget it. Oh, wow. And, okay. uh, yeah, so that, that always helped me, you know, because yep. I you know, come up with something that works. And it's like, okay, well, let me scratch it out and, you know, figure out what's going on so uh, so I could remember it. Damn. So, I mean, when did the Quincy Days start? Quincy Days started in 82, I think. Excuse yep. me. 82. I was working on a, you know, it's funny, he just passed away on a James Ingram record. And I uh, started working on that. And then uh, he called me to play on uh, Thriller. Yeah. Which was kind of cool. Kind of cool. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, the, is it still the biggest album? I think so, because after Michael passed, it started selling, selling a lot of music more. and a lot of records again. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, th I think so. I think it's still like the biggest, you know. What, looking back on that time in, in, in the studio, I, I just watched the Quincy document. Or yeah. I think. Yeah. I saw you in it and that. Yeah. And, man, I mean, I, what's it what's it like I, I guess yeah what's it like working with Quincy I mean the cool thing about Quincy is he's um, he's like a master uh, what do you call it a captain of a ship mm -hmm. and he hires people for what they do and kind of how they think and then he um, lets them start to do their thing and then he kind of hones it in steers it um we were doing the song, How Do You Keep the Music Playing? It was James Ingram and Patty Austin. And it was David Foster, Nathan East on bass, and Dougal Chancellor on drums, and myself on guitar. And David came up with this really unbelievably killer intro that ended up being like, you know, kind of the hook of the song. And then I doubled it on guitar and, you know, came up with all the parts. And, you know, and, and I remember, funny thing about that session I remember, is uh, going to the, the big shout chorus... Uh, there was a drum fill, and Dugu does this gigantic drum fill. Crashes on the cymbal, stood up, choked the cymbal, sat back down, and did not miss the backbeat. <laughs> I'll never forget. I'll never forget that as long as I live. And it, it's on the record. Wow. Yeah. But uh, but working for Quincy, he, he you know he kind of he he lets you kind of get it out, come up with ideas, and then he kind of hones it in and steers you to to where he wants you to go. Right. He seems like a, a guy that is able to bring the best together, allows them to do what they do best, and he just kind of steers the ship, like you said. Yeah, right? he's, he's a pretty amazing guy. Yeah. He's, he's really, really cool. Yeah, guy, you, yeah. but you know, I mean, look at the, you know, what got well, him to there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> I mean, easy to say that, but I mean, there's a guy who studied Duke Ellington and, yeah. you know, was arranging for Count Basie. And, and Sinatra. You know, I mean, and Sinatra. There, there's, there's, yeah. there's that whole lineage there of, I mean, back to Duke, which was probably... I don't know what if not the first one of the first band leader arrangers that understood how to write for the personalities of the people mm. in the band. Yeah, I mean, that was Duke's thing. Was how much of that music was was really stylized around the individual players mm -hmm. in that orchestra. And you know, you got like Quincy comes up through that and Count Basie. You know, it's easy it's easy to draw a line to how he was that right. way, but just by nature. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Even in a completely different style, perhaps. Right, of music. right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. When you guys were do- doing those songs with Quincy and Michael back then, was... I'm, I'm sure you get this asked so many times, but it's so cliche for me to ask this, but I feel like I have to. Um, was there a sense of, oh, this shit's, there's some, there's amazing stuff going on here. Or you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this is all right. Did you, did you have a sense? I mean, maybe not of how big it is, but uh-huh. there was something really special going on. Well, you kind of knew it was going to be a hit because off the wall it sold like 5 million records. Right. Yeah. So you go, okay, well, I know it's going to be, at least reasonably successful yeah you know and uh but no idea at all that it was you know gonna you know initially sell 40 million records and go on to selling 80 million whatever it sold you know right yeah but it you know i mean you could tell that you know the songs were good and you know obviously working with michael michael um just a really really hard working individual and uh so i mean you, you knew that it was going to do well but you had no inkling that it was going to do what it ended up doing right yeah yeah and like when you guys got a, a song given to you, did you get a lot of time to go through it and that, or was it you guys would all rough it out together, or how, how did that work with those with those tunes? Is it uh, the song PYT? We actually recorded together. We we did that together, and I went back and and did some overdubs. Yeah, uh, beat it was overdubs, and uh, Lady in My Life was overdubs. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, just kind of come in and, and come up with some stuff, and and Rod Temperton actually had some good ideas some lines that he wanted me to play and then you know yep. come up with the rest of it yeah do you do you have a favorite person i mean it's so many people you worked with do you have a favorite person that you've worked with that you're like man that was just the, that was hit like that was just the the best time doing that he, he would be one of them yeah you know he'd definitely be one of them um try to think man brain cells uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of those questions you probably get asked all the time and since uh, it goes out the window <laughs> probably Luther Vandross <laughs> yeah a lot because he was very hands-on um liked working a lot with David Foster same reason you know very hands-on and you know knew knew the stuff was going to be really really good um what was it like working with Luther just his were you in the room when he was doing his vocals at any point like, sometimes yeah because he used to do his his vocals on like Band breaks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because his, his discipline was, he had come from doing jingles in New York. Wow. So he knew how to get the vocal done, like, really, really quickly. Yeah. And so he'd keep a microphone set up, and, you know, we'd take a lunch break, and you'd come back in 45 minutes, and his vocal's finished. <laughs> you know, just really, really, really fast, really yep. good, you know. Yep. Yeah. Wow, man. I, you must look at the whole scenery now and just go, I was part of a golden age, in a sense, right? How it's changed what it is now well to the degree that <clears throat> i kind of caught the tail end of yeah of that whole thing because you got to remember you know there was no digital recording there were few synthesizers there were no drum machines when i started you know so the only way that you could do any kind of music at all was to get four five six ten twenty people in a room and press press record yeah so it demanded that you you know that you come up with stuff quickly and and so I mean, it was it was a, a really good time, and I think that it was good training for just having some type of longevity, mm. you know. Because the other thing you learn to do is adapt, and this is something that I noticed. If you go back and listen, I listened to a radio station on on Sirius XM called Soul Town, and they play stuff from like R and B and rock and roll from the fifties and sixties and seventies, 
And what you realize is that all those guys could play. Yeah. You know, they would come up with these lines and this stuff that, I mean, you just had to know how to play regardless of the discipline. And so you learn to kind of adjust, you know, and, and uh, you know, there's there's uh, there's stuff on YouTube where like there's a I remember when um, I was a kid and I was watching Glenn Campbell and George Benson. Mm on the midnight special yeah and they played affirmation and these guys are going toe to toe whereas quote unquote glenn campbell wasn't known as a jazz guy but man he was going yeah you know and they're just you know going back and forth and so you just kind of were in an environment where you had to push and you had to learn you had to adjust and you know you just you know start coming up with stuff and i think that's if anything's missing today i i'd say maybe it's that but you know that's you know like i said it's that's 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 geezer talk for me but uh um it was it was a real make a short answer long that was it was i thought it was real good training yeah, real good yeah. uh, real good time i guess the, the the whole the whole environment now we, we don't have to do what you guys did or and we're not forced into those situations what you guys did back then mm-hmm. where you had to play it and now it's like that's all right we'll fix it later or you know whatever it is but mm-hmm. i guess it's um and did you play a lot live as well while you were doing the studio thing? Not as much, unfortunately. <laughs> I should have been doing more live playing back then. So the studio thing really took over. That was yeah. But I, you know, I think that that was probably a mistake on my part. I should have been doing more live playing. Right. Yeah. Did you get a lot, a lot of offers to go out on the road and? Not really, but yeah. I mean, they, you know, there were there were clubs to play at, and you know, gigs you could go do, and and I would do some, but I think I should have done more in retrospect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Phil Spector, were you? you do stuff with him missed him missed him miss phil yeah yeah the crew was the wrecking crew done by and large i actually did a few dates with tommy tedesco which was he nice. did with tommy yeah. yeah and a couple with john Guerin, a little bit with max bennett um and plas johnson i met on a few dates but by and large they you know their whole thing had, had kind of come and gone yeah yeah Wow, man! And what was this? What was the setup? I mean, were you lugging your own gear to these studios? Did you have cartridge? Well, cartridge days. Right? Yeah, they had it cart- was cartridge, it was cartridge days. days. Yeah, it still is. Actually. Yeah, you know, and and uh, you know, but you know, fortunately for for me, cartridge was um, you know a, a Fender Deluxe, a Fender Vibrolux, a little pedal board that my dad and I made, and um, the only acoustic guitar I had, which was a Guild D50. <laughs> and that was that was cartridge for me back then. Wow. Yeah. What what about electric? Electric. Oh, electrics. I'd I'd bring. I'd bring. Uh, I had a three thirty five and, yep. and a Strat. Yeah. Yeah. And then I bought a Tully later. Did you have a favorite that um that you keep picking up nowadays? Yeah. What's that? Um. Probably my old Valley Arts Strat. That's. Oh, you got a Valley Arts. Man. That's was made in eighty one. Wow. Yeah. God, man, I just remember being in Australia as a little kid watching Larry Carlton videos in the Valley Arts yep. and Lukather and it's like, man, I saw, I was in Nashville a while back and I drove past and I saw the old, the Valley Arts sign there. Wow. So, they're long <coughs> gone, right? Yeah, they're thing. kind of, yeah, pretty much yeah. gone, yeah. Wow, man. That's going to be worth a bit now, I imagine, right? Oh, uh, probably. Yeah, I would imagine because, you know, yeah, because, I mean, there's a couple of websites where guys collect them and stuff, but, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. Is it, oh, Bruce, do you... Sorry, I keep throwing questions out. No, I'm, I'm enjoying the hell out of this. <laughs> is it more um, teaching nowadays? 
Do you play live? Do a lot of playing live now. Yep. That's that. That's funny. That's what we've so been talking made it, about. So you made up. Yeah, um, I did a record a couple of years that, that did pretty well, and then I uh, joined a band with Jeff Lorber and Everett Harp. Oh. So uh, okay. we've been going out on weekends and doing festivals and you know and clubs and stuff, and so that's been great. And then yep. uh, you know teaching's been fun, and then you know doing some sessions. Been doing more sessions at home, which has been nice. You know, got a set up there and. and uh, so that's been that's been a blast as well. So it's a it's a lot of everything. A little bit of well, it's a little bit of everything, was, but uh, it's it's really enjoyable. Was that a big learning curve? I mean, you work with some by far the biggest producers and engineers in the world, and now recording your own guitars at home. Mm-hmm. Were you able to bring a lot with you, or was it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because you know I asked a lot of questions. You know, what mics, what mic pre's, why do you use this, why does this do that? Yeah. You know, I mean, asking, I'd write stuff down and figure things out and, and just kind of learned how to do it to, to the point where I've, you know, gotten pretty good at it. Yeah. Oh, is, it, is Pro Tools your platform? Or? I use Pro Tools, yeah, because it's, it's easy and I, I primarily use it like a tape recorder. Yeah, yeah. I don't do a lot of, you know, like weird editing. I just, you know, punch in when I make a mistake like a tape recorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Keep it keep it simple. Yeah. And basics basic setup, just... Um, microphone on the speaker and where you go or well I have a, a Bradshaw rig that he built for me a few years ago and it's got a mic pre in it so I put the pedals before the amp and then mic the amp with the pre in the in the rig and then I run it through like the the time based stuff the delays and stuff and then it comes out two DI's and straight into Pro Tools oh nice yeah, so, so you don't even mic oh no I mic an amp I have an amp mic what I do is <coughs> like I have some pedals and the pedals are before the output to the amp and so those then the pedals are before that I go into the amp, mic the amp, and then in the rack there's a mic pre. <clears throat> so the mic pre, uh, the output of the mic pre then goes to the time-based effects like the delays and, and uh. chorus and stuff like that. And then the final thing is a DI that goes straight into Pro Tools. It comes out in line level. So wow. That, yeah. It works great. Works great, yeah. yeah. It's been working fine, yeah. Is, it, is Bradshaw still going? He's still, he's still going. He's He still makes great stuff. He's... <clears throat> Not the fastest guy in the world, but <laughs> but he, you know, his stuff is really dependable now and really good, and he's yeah, yeah, he's still making stuff. Wow, he's he moved. Is he downtown nowadays? Or he was downtown. He moved to Philly. Oh wow! Yeah, he's in Philly. He found a this like real creative community that was a real burgeoning creative community there in Philly. So he moved his whole operation there. Wow, I mean, what back in the day? I mean, just those <laughs> monster racks and yeah. I mean, it's crazy what we're able to do now with little pedal boards and little pieces of gear. Exactly. Everything's everything's about cartage and can I get it on the plane or do I have to pay extra for it? Funny thing you'd say that. It's like um, I have a, you know, we're talking about gigging. So I had built a pedal board that fit in my suitcase. Yeah. No problem. It was, uh, I don't know, I think it was maybe 20 by 12. Right. 20 by 13. 20 by 13. It was 20 by 13. Put in my suitcase, no problem. The problem wasn't the travel. The problem was that the TSA kept taking it apart. Oh, Jesus. So, oh, so they'd go in, they'd see it. <laughs> they'd go in and wow. see it. Oh, what is this? So the, the last straw was I had come from, I think, Korea or somewhere, and I got home, and the bottom was falling off of the power supply. And I said, okay, that's it. So what I did was I kind of broke it down even more. So now it's 17 by 11, mm-hmm. and I carry it on board in one of those 19-inch rollers. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is, going through X-ray, nobody looks at it. It goes through the X-ray, and it goes, ah, fine. And nobody, never, nobody asks any questions, and that way nobody fools with it. So I put it right in the overhead, and, you know, good to go. Isn't that crazy? Wow, man. It's, um, 
Yeah, I remember, I remember traveling with a. It was a hundred and fifty pound pedal board. Yeah, a hundred and fifty. Hundred and fifty pound pedal board. How could that? There's not because the pedals. road case was like a giant keyboard right. case. It was stupidity upon stupidity, and I probably used two pedals on the board. <laughs> but damn, did I look like I knew what I was doing? Yeah. Right. But yeah, I mean, I I look at that and think that's way too big now. Right. Now that's a double stack. You know, that's yeah, it's a double stack. But I feel yeah. that's too big. I don't even need that now. You know, is that, is that a gig rig or what is that? No, it's um, it's actually the Boss switcher. Oh, the uh, MS8. Um, what is that called again? Am I the ES8? Yeah, the Boss ES8. Yeah, yeah. those are yeah. really good. They're great, man. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's basically a Bradshaw and a little. Well, see, that's the other thing that's happened is is that. Um, you know, like the one that I that I take with me, it's programmable. I have a Boss MS3 on there, and then oh, great, right? another board that I that I have an ES8 on, and yep. and uh, like you said, you you get there, and they sell these kits that you can buy at Sweetwater, where you make your own cables and plug stuff in, and the power supplies and tie wrap stuff, and you know, and even um, Dave Friedman yeah, makes a pedal board kit that comes with the board, the case, the power supply, the ins and outs. Even the Velcro. I mean, all you got to do is like add pedals and stir. I mean, it's really, you know. So it's it's yeah. I mean, you can you can do some danger, you know, on your own. So it's, it's yeah, like man. God. If I was sixteen again and I actually really wanted to do that, now I don't want to mess with that shit. I just want to play. Yeah. Right. You're just yeah. like, oh god, man, I don't want to mess with this shit. Well. But um, yeah. That's uh, Have you used the Kellys before? I've just seen them. I I never had one. I know. Remember Lee Rittenauer had them. Yeah, and I remember they sounded really good, and that's all I remember. Yeah, um, we had John Sir yeah on the show, and I told him I said, "Oh, can you bring a Cali?" And I'd love to just try it out for it. And he mm -hmm. he left it with me for three months, and then I fell in love with it. Nice, and I had to buy it. Yeah, so um, that was that. But um, do you, do you have a a main amp nowadays that you prefer to use? Uh, not. I still use a variety of stuff. Yeah, you know. Um, just a you know variety of stuff that I that I use. Um, you know I like I still like my my Revere Fenders mm -hmm. that I use, and then uh, Fuchs. I have a couple of Fuchs amps. Oh, and, okay, they're really good. Right? And uh, yeah, some Evil Robots, and you know I have a little Marshall and a little uh, Ampeg Jet amp that I like, and then yeah. and then I actually started developing an amp with a guy named John Casha. John Casha. And okay. uh, the amp's called Miss Midi, and it, what the impetus was. Uh, you know, an amp that had enough clean headroom, you know, for jazz, but didn't, you know, break your, you know, break your back. It weighs forty pounds, and it's got three channels, so it's got a nice distortion channel, and it's got reverb and effects loop and stuff, yep. and it's hand wired point to point, and it's one twelve inch speaker. Right. You know, is it switchable between the channels? Yeah. I mean, so like you're plugged in the foot switch, and you go to the distortion right. channel. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and the, like the first channel has volume and tone. You know, and just a lot of clean headroom. The second yeah. channel is another clean channel, which will get in distortion if you crank it. And then it's got like an overdrive uh, channel as well. And I just tried to think of all the things that I would like in an amp, if, you know, that I would gig with all the time. So I've been, we made a prototype and I've been recording with the prototype. And it's been really, really good, really received well. Wow. So it should be out in a couple of months. Cool. What's this going to be called? It's called Miss Mitty, M-I-M-S-M-I-T-T-I-E. Uh, Miss Mitty was my grandmother. Miss so Mitty, I, I yeah, love so that, Yeah, so that was her man. nickname, so I, I named it after her. That's Great. cool. Yeah. And the company is? Kasha. 
Cash, Cash Amps. Amps. Yeah, he's the one that made the evil robot. And mm-hmm. his start was modding Marshalls for like a lot of the metal guys back in the days. Oh wow! And then he started an amp company, and and we've been friends for years, and yeah. just kind of decided to do it. Cool, yeah. man. That, that whole environment, like, did you were at Nam? Did you go to Nam? I year? did. Yeah, briefly. Yeah. yeah. Just, I mean. So many AM companies, I almost... And people really doing amazing things. Oh, they're, they're incredible stuff, but I, I feel sorry for some of these guys just to try and break into the market. It's so hard. Yeah. It's it's interesting because what you don't want to try and do is be all things to everybody. Yeah. yeah. You know, this AMP is like not trying to be a Marshall. It's not trying to be a Plexi. You know, it's not trying to be a Dumble. It's trying to be exactly what it is, which is an AMP that you can take to a gig, it's going to sound great, it's going to be dependable, it's all tube, it's hand-wired, it's got three channels, and, uh, it, you know, very versatile. But, you know, like I said, it's a it's a good workhorse, gigging, great-sounding amplifier. But, you know, it's not trying to be a matchless, you know, you can't, you just can't be all things to everybody. So, you know, you pick kind of pick your lane and, you know, stay in it. Yes. That's, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Wow, man, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So has it got a certain look about it, or is it? It looks old. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I mean, it's got you know chicken head knobs, and then like I said, the first channel is is volume and tone. Right. I love that. Because it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> if you want it brighter, turn the tone right. up. You know, right. old amps had like a volume and a tone. You yeah. know, and uh, so my big thing was was clean headroom because you know even for rhythm I play really hard, and you know except if you're playing like an Fender Twin or something like that. You know the, the preamp would break up and you know kind of bug me and so i said you know first thing it's got to have is like a lot of clean headroom yeah so uh <clears throat> that's that's the first thing we went for in channel one was that that was probably your main calling for the, the session day so you you're the rhythm guy that laid it down right usually yes yeah uh-huh. yeah yeah that was that was your stick so was there anything particular besides having an amazing pocket and that being your thing was there anything sound-wise or the way, did you or use a hard pick? Were you a soft pick kind of guy or? The harder the better. Harder the better. Mm-hmm. It's like. Yeah, just, I use actually extra heavy picks. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> it's interesting, I kind of learned that in school. Um, because when you use light picks, a lot of times you, you, you can't really dig into the string. Hmm. And it's funny. I've gone. I've got. You'll laugh at this. Is as I've gotten older, I've, I've gone up in gauges of strings, and uh, I used to use tens, and then I didn't like those, and I went to elevens, and now I use twelves, on on you know round wound twelves with a plain third, just because they're thicker and they they make the guitar to me speak better. Yeah. And the plain third you can still bend, but you know there's some meat on them. Yeah. And to really move a string, you need a heavy pick, and that's just you know that's that's just my trip but that's you know except if you're strumming acoustic then i use mediums right because it's more for lack of a better way of putting it i feel like it's more strummy yep yeah yeah but yeah. uh but uh yeah i use the heavier the better yeah yeah i, I always heard tommy Manuel say use a heavier pick i'll make you a better player yeah i think so what, yeah. do, you, what do you think well you know i i like them uh i use a heavy pick but i find that and again i'm in a whole different you know, you know, equipment sphere than you. Okay. So, like, I mean, I've got a 14 on top. Right. So, like, uh, and I've got a real dark sounding guitar. So, my problem with heavy, extra heavy picks uh-huh. is I don't get enough of the high overtones out of my instrument. Oh, so, okay. I feel like I start getting buried in bands. Okay. Because it's too dark. Gotcha. So, I mean, I still it's still a heavy pick. If yeah. you by any 
it's a heavy. Right. But it's not extra heavy. Gotcha. Because the the more I get past what I've got, I feel like I'm losing highs. Okay. The whole way. That's interesting. But I still get, I mean, believe me, I get lots of response. Right. Yeah. And I do hit fairly hard myself. Yeah. And so, and, yeah. of, and of course, with, with 14s and strings that thick, they speak real fast. See, that that's why I went so to 12s. So I don't really yeah. need that much. Mm-hmm. But I... Like I like I say, I mean I, I love if I like I'm playing just solo guitar, but mm-hmm. even then, I find that it's darker, and mm-hmm. you know I I get my hands get a dark sound. Wow, I've got, I've got a I've got a jazz guitar to begin with. Right, you know how they lean towards the dark side. Yeah, I'm just trying to get as much of the brightness out of the instrument as gotcha. as I can. Yeah, so. I, I I agree with you. I mean, I, I I used to use much heavier than I use. Yeah. And the only reason I went lighter was not because of the touch, but it was because I felt like I was losing the high overtone. I gotta investigate that. I'm gonna revisit that. That's interesting. I'll give you what I'm using. And okay. You, you just try I'll check it out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. What are you using? I'm using, using those, those prime Dunlop? tone Dunlops. Yeah. And uh, they're making Dunlop makes these uh, picks. That they they're their high end version. Okay, they're still celluloid like the old Fenders. Right, but they taper the edges. Yeah, I'd like to see those. And uh, there's a crap load of them in the office. Okay, in the uh, but I'll give you what I'm using. I okay. don't know if any of those are in there, but lots of different gauges, lots of different composite stuff. Oh, nice. Okay, with the, with the texture grip and with the untextured grip. Yeah, they're right there, and there's a little like a a wooden thing with a drawer right, right by the file cabinet. Okay, yeah. Just yeah. open that drawer, and there's a million picks of these. In oh, there. Okay, thanks. I'll, I'll check yeah, them out. Yeah, just check them out, and they're all gauged from like in the seventy point seven to up to like two point oh. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Give it a shot. And Thank I've you. got some of Barney Kessel's picks here. We'll give you some of those. Oh wow. And those are like two point oh. Yeah. 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 The Barney yeah. Kessel pick. Wow. Yeah. yeah Bar- I was visiting with Barney's widow a while, and she said, "He mm-hmm. left this thing of picks. Do you want them?" I said, "Sure, I'll take wow. them." Wow. Wow. Okay. So those are really. You know, yeah. considerably heavier. And Barney was a beast. He yeah. he really hit hard. Yeah. This is that's funny. This is about what I use. Um, it is. Yeah. yeah. And this here, I'll just give you one of mine here out of my pocket. Thank you, sir. You, you know, it's just like a Fender heavy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Perfect. You know, but it's funny how like if you hear me play, if I use that, right. and then I use one of Barney's, it's like I turn the tone knob back about three or four clicks. I gotta, I gotta check that out. And so for me, out. like when I get into louder group, mm-hmm. I want to have, I don't want to lose that much of the right. high end. Whereas if I'm playing solo, it's kind of okay. Yeah. But then you got the tone knob for that, right? You know, in your fingers. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that that's just kind of where I am. I'm, I just keep trying to encourage myself to get the sound as bright as possible. Gotcha. Because you know how it's like, I mean, as opposed to being in the studio when you're playing live, when you're playing, with the brightness you're hearing, only about the people about within five feet of you are hearing that much of the brightness. Right. It's lost. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. And I don't want to be one of those... <laughs> right. You know, I don't... I want you to hear every note in the chord I play. Right, I exactly. I play it. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> No, you know, I, can just, sense. I can just muffle it, you know. Yeah. There's no problem. I'll yeah. just play with a baseball mitt on my left hand. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so, growing up as a kid, who were the cats that you were you were really digging on and you were bugging uh, to to learn more off? Was there any cats that really really stood out? Well, you know, back then it was 
you know, as much as I could get on record. Yeah. You know, and so it was uh it was Wes Montgomery, it was George Benson, it was Earl Clue, it was Lee Rittenauer, and then later it was Ray Parker Jr. and Al McKay. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I really owe a lot to my guitar teacher Gary Bell and uh, Greg Paré. Yeah. I studied with Greg. He taught me classical. Oh, Greg's so great. Man. Yeah. I love yeah. Greg. Yeah. yeah. Greg uh, taught me classical when I was, I started taking from him when I was 16. Wow. Yeah. And um, and then Gary Bell um, was a guy, it's a funny, interesting story, he was a sax player. He played with Fats Domino. And the guitar player in the band taught him to play the guitar. And so he ended up and he was my guitar teacher from the time I was 12 until I was, uh, I think, about 16. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I owe a lot to Gary. And then Greg. Greg taught me, you know, classical. I was actually a, a really good classical player for a while. Wow. Because I played it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, that's why the classical guitar is in our office, because I sit in there and go through stuff and well, trying to great, get back man. into it, you know. But, uh, yeah, mm. yeah. And with your live stuff now, what what kind of genre are you are you doing the jazz stuff, or you you get out there and do more? Yeah, well, it's 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 jazz light, and right. you know it, it's funny because it's, it, people have you know they've really like to me messed up the radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I know now I sound like an old fart, but <laughs> go for it. I remember. You it, man. I remember. <laughs> Run back, you kids! Get away from that! <laughs> get away from my radio! No, um, I just remember being inspired. Yeah, you'd listen to jazz radio, and you'd hear straight ahead. Then you'd hear fusion. Then you'd hear ballads. Then you'd hear like funk jazz. Then you'd hear something else. You'd hear a singer. Then you'd hear a big band, then you'd hear a quartet, and everybody was playing either at the Lighthouse or Concerts by the Sea or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And everybody had to play. And that was the cool thing. And I remember I was a big, huge, you know, Earl Clue fan because for me it's like he made the classical that I was learning kind of make sense in a different genre. Right. And I remember just going to see him play and just like going, wow, I remember it's funny. I remember he was playing at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, and he opened for, was it, oh gosh, it was, was it John Abercrombie? No, it was, let's see, it was Miroslav Vitos, Alphonse Muzan, and I think it might have been John Abercrombie. Larry Coriel. Larry Coriel. It was Larry Coriel, Yes. And uh, amazing, amazing show. It was just amazing. You know, Earl did his thing. And then Larry came out and he played acoustic for like the first three songs. Yeah. And then Miroslav Vitos came out and, and, and uh, Alphonse was on. And they did some like fusion stuff. But it was inspiring. And you listen to the radio and you get inspired. And now somebody decided that you had to take the changes and the odd meters and the different things and the solos and the stuff out of instrumental music to get make it palatable and they just messed up the radio and so then they started putting people in categories okay this is straight ahead okay this is this is smooth jazz okay this is whatever and to make us to make a short answer long 
what we're doing, like you know, like I said, I joined this band with with Jeff and Everett. Jeff's background is is bebop and, and fusion. Right. So being in a band with Jeff, you're forced to play, <laughs> and that's a cool thing. Yeah. That's a really cool thing. And same thing with Everett. You know, you're forced to play, and the guitar player in the band before me was Chuck Loeb. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So you're forced to play. <laughs> you know, and which is great yep. because it kind of takes the the nonsense out of it, if you will. And uh, and I'm not. This is not to put anybody down or or whatever. This is this is one man's opinion, but I just really miss the days where you would turn on the radio and never knew what it was going to be, but everything was inspiring. Yeah, right. You know, just everything. You know, you you know, you run down to the record store. Boy, I'm dating myself. You know, you'd run. You'd save your money and run down to the record store, and you know, and and the the record with George Benton and Joe Farrell had just come out, and you're like, wow. This is cool. And you heard guitar and flute. When's the last time you heard guitar and flute? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and you know, Joe Farrell, you know, because he was a great flute player as well as sax player, you know, and just just stuff, you know. You'd hear Earl Clue and Chet Atkins. You know, you'd hear just, you know, like you said, you'd hear, you know, Larry Coriel, you know, like, um, and and you just yeah uh, there was a uh, instrumental record it was an acoustic record a dual record that Coriel did with Steve Kahn right and you'd hear that on the radio I heard it on the radio and I'm like I got to get this record and you know really you know I really praise God for my parents because you know I I'm always at the record store you know I'm buying this stuff you know yep. and I'm in there playing it at 16 speed trying to figure out what they did you know so that's that's really what I what I would like to see and like you know like to see come back. I'd like to see uh, categories disappear. I'd like to see um, walls come down, and I'd like to see people exposed to a, a variety of things because they're going to check it out. They're like like at the North Sea Jazz Festival, you go to North Sea. There's a million different things happening all at once, and everybody's digging everything. Mm. You know, there's some of everything going on, and everybody's digging everything because they're exposed to it. Yeah, and it's just great. And yeah. it's great. I mean, a lot of yeah. I mean, for me, a lot of it is because just people are to get it's community. You know, guys are playing, and girls. Whatever people are playing, mm -hmm. people are hanging. It's great music. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like we all think we're all different. You know, I mean, if you listen to the world, we're all different. No, we're all the same. We're all the same. We're yeah. all the same. We right. all want the same thing. You know that that stuff where all that everybody is separating us with is like a small percentage of the real shit. Yeah, you know yeah. we all want to have a good time. We all want to be safe. We all want to be healthy. Yeah, you know we all want to be loved. I mean, yeah, it's like well, who doesn't want that? You know, we're all the same. Yeah, and yet, and yet, when you put people in music together, that's what you get. And yet. The genres, they were all defined by the people that were selling the music, right? Right. right. They weren't by the people that made the music. No, weren't by the people that made the music, no. I mean, there's, I, there's only one kind of music that I think of that, that people actually thought of it before they played it. All the other kinds of music, it's like they just people just played it and then they named it later. Right, right. This is my shit. You know, it's, it's just influences my, this is what I hear. Okay. Right. Oh, yeah, that's bebop. Oh, really? I mean, the guys who played bebop hated that word. Yeah. Okay. Burden does hated that at first. You know, they were, you know, it was, they considered it a slight. Yeah. A slur. I mean, you know, and, and everybody, nowadays people like invent genres 
And then once right. the genre is invented, bands come up for the genre. Right. And it's it's just like selling shit to people, and yeah, and it it kills the community in it because where's the awesome responsibility of art, which is being honest and making a statement and telling yeah. your story. B- big band music used to be that was dance music. Yeah, that's yeah. what people dance to. It was right. Big bands. Yeah. Why don't they do that now? They could. Yeah. People are the same. It's just as much fun. You know, get dressed up and go hear a big band and dance, and you know, it's it's interesting. Two things about teaching. One thing is when students come in, say, "Okay, I was no, I was doing a uh, guitar symposium, and I said, okay, somebody name me a jazz chord.' <laughs> okay, well, name me an R and B chord. Well, name me a rock and roll chord. There's no such thing. I just chords, just chords." And, uh, and we teach, I teach in the popular music department, and first-year students, one of the things that they have to learn is old rock and roll and R&B to get kind of the vocabulary. And so some of these kids are struggling and some of them are struggling, and I said, you know what? One of the problems is, is that they don't dance. Right. People used to dance. They're not connected rhythmically at all. To right, music. you know, and, and I tell them, I said, you know, I said, this music should make, it just feels so good that it should make you dance. And it's funny, I went to their rehearsal for their, their midterm, their midterm uh, concert. And finally, I see the same kids that didn't have a clue. They're dancing because the music's feeling better and they're sounding better and they've got to move. And I said, see, you guys are dancing. And it's interesting that, you know, like you said, it was a community. You'd go and you'd hear a band either at a club or a show or somewhere and you'd either sit and listen, you'd get up and dance, or you you know you come and it's a and it's a big band and or a singer singing or whatever you know a dance band, and you come and you have a good time, and I think that people now are missing something. It it it's it seems very simplistic, but I think it was so vital in terms of the creative process. Yeah. You know, because you 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 would feed off of stuff like you know you'd you'd be in a big band and it's like okay, you know you got an eight bar solo, it's like okay, I'm okay. I want to make sure that, that tonight I played good. Well, I, you know maybe I got another chance to do it tomorrow and and you know and, and another and you know, Friday night is big. Okay, we got two shows. We got the eight and the ten show. You know, and the ten o'clock crowd they like to they like to dance and they like up tempo numbers. So you know we're gonna do this and and just you know stuff that you think of and. And you know, and then folks would go, "Oh man, I want to go. I want to go to this club because the orchestra is really good." Or, you know, I want to go to this club because you know the big band's really good. The singer they have is really good. And so there was all this stuff where, you like you said, it was community where you know I want to go. I want to have a good time. I want to feel something. You know, I want to eat something good. I want to dance. I want you know, and 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 it, I think it all came out in the music. You know, but like I said, that's just that's just one man's opinion. No, you, a, a we, lot, you know you, uh, the, the wankers have all heard this for me, so I won't. I won't add to that. But yeah, it's like, yeah, we're so we're we're more separated now than we've ever been. And 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 the, the environment, you know, art is not in a vacuum. Right. It doesn't just happen because some brilliant person in some far off place creates something and then the world happens. No. Art happens because it reflects its environment. Mm. And in, in the case of a lot of jazz and pop, particularly 
the world we're in now, yeah. when we see each other, is we're in a school. Right. Now, uh, I'm a little older than you. and Not much. Uh, yeah, 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 I am. <laughs> I've been hearing your dates, and I am. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so... We grew up playing. You grew up in the studio. I grew up playing it in clubs. Okay, you know, and in slightly different genres, yeah. but still, I mean, it was a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, you know, same people, and I was playing it for people with great musicians. Yeah. And of course, we were the nerds and into everything that was coming out, and right. hearing everything, and going and checking everybody out. Nothing could happen without us knowing about it. Because we were just so into it. Yeah. When it came down to playing it, we were playing it for people. Yeah. In a, in an environment where, like you say, it's the eight o'clock show. You know. Right. Don't don't mess them up too bad. It's dinner time. They're going to have a great time. We're just going to like lay them out with right. our cool shit. Ten o'clock comes. They're all dancing. We got to get some. We got to get some heat. Right. Got to get the pots. Right. On fire here. And that's just the way we did it, you know, and, and it, it, it affected who we were and how we played. Yeah. We didn't think about it in those terms. I'm describing it in those terms. Right. We just knew that's the way you acted. And then we get into postmodern area of now, and, and these kids don't even have these, they've never even experienced the music on that level, much mm-hmm. less played it on that level. Yeah. They play it because uh, they hear it on a record. They see it on YouTube. They uh, they play together at school, and the criteria is is for them to do it well. We grade them, right? <laughs> and then when they go out and play it, the only people they play it for are each other. Hmm. They're not really doing it in the mm-hmm. same kind of environment like they're playing it for normal people, right? They're playing it for other musicians or their peers, mm-hmm. and so within that context. At least these styles of music. Now, perhaps the hip hop scene is different. Okay. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah, and I, I will not begin to talk about it because I just don't know enough right. about it, other than having listened to what I've listened to. But I don't hang out in those places it's played, mm-hmm. and you know, so. right. But in just in terms of pop, jazz, rock, that you know, yeah. the kids we I'm around, they really don't have any context like I had mm-hmm. growing up. And I think the music is reflecting that. A big part is uh, uh, you'll hear people who can do everything but can't do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Oh, good, good. I'm glad, I'm glad yeah, you understand. It makes perfect sense. Because, like, you know, I mean, okay, we got to make something happen. Give me an intro. Ah! You know, fold. Okay, right. you know, they're so busy trying to be cool that or play the hip shit or, or whatever they're doing that it's like no I just needed yeah. just needed eight just bars need- to start the song right. please you know okay that just fell down and then now it's like and then we get up into this and then okay we gotta end this like <laughs> you know right. those basic things that you just had to do all night long right. in a normal situation yes it's kind of not really called on in the environments that exist today yeah and so the environment is shaping. Yet, yet because of the access to information and the access to instruction, right. these kids are technically phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. And just the evolution of the species, mm. they're so talented on another level because mm. they, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of our right of our, uh, of our predecessors of our yeah. people. Yeah. So 
on the evolutionary scale and on the technical scale, they're like amazing. Right. Amazing. And yet, on some functional levels that don't seem to matter anymore, but, but geezers like me or dinosaurs like me recognize that they're not there. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you'd say that because um, I would tell, tell my students and tell people, I say, you want to get good? So this is what you did. Find three or four of your friends and go find a bar or a hotel lounge. And just play. And just play. Right. Just play. Right. Play all night. Figure stuff out. Make some mistakes. Find what works. Find what you like. Find what you don't like. Realize that after three songs, you're done. Yeah. And you've got a whole night still. Right. <laughs> right. That's the nightmare. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. No, that, no, that's yeah. that, that's the yeah. first thing that happens to a young musician in that in the world Paul is describing, which doesn't exist, because because now they're playing like two short sets in a club with their friends, listen to them, and everything's arranged and written out. They don't, they don't, you know, it's all done. So it's like it's like what about a five hour gig with a bunch of people you don't know, mm. and and a bunch of people listen to you that really don't give a shit. Yeah. Now we're talking about needing some fucking backup now you calling in the cavalry <laughs> of like your imagination you wow uh, wow i've done everything i know well, i better figure out another way to do it because i'm not only going to bore them worse i'm going to bore me yeah. yeah i used to work for this guy by the name of don johnson don johnson was the king of the black casuals and what he would do is he would have four bands a night under the name don johnson society orchestra so he'd get four bands. He played trumpet. Right. So he'd go play a set with one band, <laughs> collect the money, go play the set with the next band, and he'd do that all night. And so I used to work with Don, and he had a piano player by the name of Tolly Moore. Tolly Moore, I think, was the music teacher at Inglewood High School. Wow. And by the second set, Tolly would be plastered. <laughs> and I would sit next to Tolly because he would play, and I'd learn a lot. And so by the second set, he'd just be hollering at me. Play! Yeah. Come on, play! Make something happen. You know, make something happen. Right. Make something happen. <laughs> and this is the second set. You know, you got at least one more to go. Right. You know, you're not getting out of here to one in the morning. So, you know. As I said, we'll do, uh, well, it'll be episode 163, right? Is that what I said? Yeah. 160, no, 162 this week. And then next week, 163. 162, and we're going to give away some prizes, so make sure you look out for that one. It's going to be a double episode thing this week, and we'll make up for that, uh, that, whatever you call it. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, remember, Patreon members, look out for your prizes that are coming. And other people that were looking for prizes, they'll be coming soon too. And uh, have a great week. Be safe. And we'll see you all next week.